Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 14. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Acton Boxborough uh, Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Every episode on Life of the School podcast, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they got in the classroom, what they're currently working on, and what they hope to work on in the future. This week, I sit down with Chi Klein. Chi is an academic dean and AP biology teacher from St. Stephen's Episcopal School in Bradenton, Florida. Chi began teaching at St. Stephen's in 2001 and shifted roles to also becoming an being an academic dean in 2014. She is actively engaged in the biology teacher community. This includes working as an HHMI bioactive ambassador and creating a video about her use of HHMI resources. At NABT 2016, she co-presented the hands-on workshop Engaging Students with Authentic Scientific Literature with Scott Sowell another teacher from Florida, as well as presenting her own workshop on simple and expensive ways to teach the most difficult biological concepts. She and Scott co-presented at NMEA 2016 on coral bleaching and the nature of science in the classroom. At NABT 2015, she co-presented a workshop on science writing using an explanation tool with Diana Shields from Rhode Island. This coming summer, she will be working with other teachers during a week-long NABT BSCS Regional AP Biology Teacher Academy. In addition to collaborating with other science teachers and leading workshops, she is active in various online communities, including the College Board AP Biology Teacher Community, the National AP Biology Teacher Group on Facebook, as well as frequently posting about science and teaching on Twitter. She earned her bachelor's degree in life sciences from the University of Illinois and a master's degree in biological sciences from Northern Illinois University. Welcome, Chi. Thank you, Aaron. Nice to be here, and I appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to get to you during uh, during vacation here. Um, are you in a, a one-week vacation, or do you have a longer vacation? Uh, we have two weeks. You have two weeks. So you uh, you had, is this your second week off? This is my second week off. We go back on the third for professional development, and then the students come back on the fourth. Oh, that's that's nice. We, uh, we go back on the third with students uh, right into it. <laughs> Yeah. But, but I imagine you start earlier in the in the year um, down in Florida. You start early in August. Yes, August seventeenth is when we started. Yeah. So you're pretty much at the mid year point then. We are. We just finished our semester one exams. Um, and actually, I've been working over the break uh, in my academic dean position, just checking report cards and you know hand calculating random GPAs just to make sure that everything's up and running. Yeah, that's one of those interesting things about Massachusetts. We tend to start in, in September, you know, last week of August, first week of September. And so we go back for three weeks, and then we have our mid-year week, um, you know, in the end of end of January. Um, it's an unusual, like, as I realize, I you know, it's something I've grown up with. I grew up in Massachusetts, so it's something I've always done. Um, I didn't realize it was unusual, but now that I talk to teachers around the country, I'm realizing... A lot of people gave their, you know, mid-years before they went away on this winter break, and we're not like that. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's interesting to see how it varies across the country. Yeah, it also creates a, it's an interesting dynamic in terms of, and I know you teach AP as well as I do, you know, I, 
I finish up with my students, um, you know, really we have a month less content. Um, we get back and I have, I actually have my students do a full other project, uh, there. And with my, my juniors, I really actually have like a month and a half with my juniors after the AP exam, um, which, wow. which is, which is unusual <laughs> compared to explorations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's actually, it is a great Guinea pig time, uh, for me. Uh, so a lot of times we'll go back and, you know, we'll redo a, a different project or, um, you know, the past couple of years we've been doing, um, the Wolbachia project where oh, we, yes. yeah, where we, uh, we will collect insects and, um, and run Wolbachia and that extends off of some of the other stuff we've done. Uh, or we pilot some labs that I've been thinking about. Um, I have a couple of lab ideas that are in my head right now. Um, I always tell the kids, well, we'll get, we'll do one of my little side projects. Uh, so it, it is a great time to, to tr test things out with some, some very bright, bright kids in a very low stress environment. Um, yeah, so that's, that's and the, the Wolbachia research has it's been fascinating to read about that. Yeah, uh, Seth Bordenstein. Yeah, pardon me, Seth Borden, Borden, I can't even pronounce his last name. Sorry about that. Yeah, I, well, I I butcher it all the time, and I've been in workshops with him. So, um, yeah, yeah, he's out in uh, he's in Vanderbilt, um, and he does. Yeah, he's doing some amazing stuff, and it, it's creeping into a lot of other pieces because they find that um, you know the the mosquitoes that don't naturally carry Wolbachia, I don't think. Um, uh, but when they induce Wolbachia infection in mosquitoes, they don't transmit, um, they don't transmit uh, malaria and some of these other viruses like Zika and chikungunya and dengue. Uh, they find that they're knocking down their ability to transmit when they're Wolbachia infected. So it's some, some really fascinating uh, applicable research that they've been doing. So yeah, so um, so I'm gonna start. You know, we, we could. I said we, we got on here and we just started chatting, and I'm like, okay, we could chat for like an hour and a half. <laughs> but I'm actually gonna try to run a podcast here and ask you my questions and, and see where we go. Um, I, I'm sure we're gonna get into a lot of the things I mentioned in my introduction uh, because we we know several people in common, um, including that workshop that you're gonna run at the end of the school year. Uh, but before we do, I want to ask you, you know, how did you get into the classroom? Uh, what did you do before teaching? What led you to becoming a, a high school teacher? Um, well, as a child, I think I was always uh, inquisitive. Um, and in my freshman year in high school, actually, uh, I took uh, honors biology, and then we had the option to take as an elective uh, biological research. So I did both of them. You know, not sure why, but I, it just sounded interesting to me. Um, and so that that was with Mr. Charles Bischoff at Rolling Meadows High School. And it was one of the first experiences that I had where a teacher just let me go in the lab and just explore things. And I did some research on paramecia, and I love fell in love with the microscope, of course, um, in which I did a project that was involving whether or not the paramecia could determine the types of food that they could eat. Um, and I would count the food vacuoles. But of course, they were scurrying around so quickly mm -hmm. that we had to problem solve that. And then I used methyl cellulose to slow them down. <laughs> and that was kind of that the first entree into um, doing that type of research on my own. Um, and it was so exciting. <laughs> um, and then I went to the regional science fair with that project, uh, and I thought I totally bombed. I was very shy as a child mm -hmm. and barely spoke up. Um, and my title was, uh, do paramecia learn, learn in quotes, uh, 
what foods to eat or something along that line. And the judges, one of the judges was really harsh and said, what do you mean about learning? You know, they don't have brains and all this. I thought I totally bombed that. <laughs> but actually, um, I did well enough that I went to the state science fair. Um, and it was my first time on a college campus. And that was the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign campus. Mm -hmm. And Pulse Road, as you know, went there as well. Yep. So high marks for that school. <laughs> um, I fell in love with the campus. Um, you know, I fell in love with science, bio, research. And then in my junior year, I took a course called, as an elective, Our Changing World. Um, and I did a case study. We had, uh, this was one of the first kind of inklings of project-based learning. Mm -hmm. I was so blessed to have such amazing, amazing teachers. Um, and so in Mr. Anderson's class, we did Our Changing World um, case studies. Um, and then I did one on families and was looking at the psychology and the dynamics within families. It was a huge project for me. I, I showcased three different families. And one of the final questions on that is in 10 years where do you see yourself um and it's so interesting to kind of look at that and I said that I'd love to be doing something with science and children either being a pediatrician or a science teacher mm -hmm. um so I went to UVI as a pre-med pre uh, life science major but pre-med and then found out quickly that I'm just not that competitive <laughs> <laughs> I compete with myself but I I'm just I, and also, you know, I still turn my head when my son gets his shots and <laughs> I have to get over that ew feeling the first time I present a, a dissection to my students. Um, and then I went to Northern Illinois University afterwards because, uh, again, I was still kind of, okay, no, no pre-med, so what do I do next? Well, maybe research. And so I went there uh, for biological sciences, um, got several teaching assistantships. And then fell in love with teaching. Yeah. I didn't know I had it in me since I was so shy uh, early on. Um, but there was something about teaching where you're actually presenting to help students learn, to help others learn something interesting or something you're passionate about um, that just captured me. Um, and so I went to my general graduate advisor and said, I think I really want to teach. And, of course, he kind of dashed my hopes really quickly because <laughs> he said, uh, are you independently wealthy? And at the time, I was so shocked by the question yeah. <laughs> because I hadn't taken any education classes up to that time. It was just very science heavy. Um, and I was offended. <laughs> but then looking back on it, I really um, I, I kind of treasure that moment because I think that he saw something in me that maybe I didn't see in myself, perhaps, um, and that he was trying to kind of steer without, you know, I don't know, steer me in a direction that I wasn't really quite ready to go to. Um, but I still think that, you know, I talk about when my son graduates from college, maybe I'll go back and get a PhD. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, the idea that you were going to become like this poor, poor teacher. <laughs> Right. Well, because I hadn't taken any education classes and you have to do that to get certified. Um, but then I met, um, well, I had a really uh, great friend there who was teaching, um, who got a job teaching at 
IMSA, the Illinois Math and Science Academy, mm-hmm. and that's an independent school. And so he directed me towards the independent schools where you don't have to, you have to have qualifications, but you don't necessarily have to be certified to teach. Um, and I started out at Lake Forest Academy in Illinois, and that's where we've gone, and I love it, and I still love it. Yeah. yeah. I, I held on to my teaching at least one class. <laughs> I'm holding on to that for a while um, just because I think that there is such a great exchange, and I actually think it makes me a better administrator. Well, yeah, that brings us into that next that next piece, which is, you know, you, you did transition in roles a couple of years ago, um, and you're not the... The first teacher I've talked to, um, I, I guess the first question I would ask is, you know, what led to the transition of being a full-time teacher into being a, you know, I guess your primary job is academic and dean now. What led into that transition? I had always been drawn to leadership roles um, and been part of a lot of committees. And in terms of the direction of the school, I was very interested in being part of those conversations. Um, my science department chair um, had asked me if I would be interested in being science department chair after she was uh, going to step down for her own reasons. Um, And at first, uh, that's where I was headed. Uh, But then our former academic dean got a position as an associate uh, head of school um, in curriculum and and instruction. I'm sure I'm getting the title wrong there. and, but so she basically got a promotion out. <laughs> uh, and so this job opened up, and I really thought I had something to contribute in terms of, of having a voice in the direction of education and the direction of the school. Uh, I also felt strongly about our faculty. I didn't want them to be left in a lurch, and I knew all of them. I, I care for all of them quite a bit. Um, as colleagues and as friends, and then also with my students. I thought that this was a way for me to kind of help them in, diff- in a different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, uh, I went for it, and it was an intensive interviewing process uh, where, of course, you know, I was in a room with the director of technology, the head of school, the uh, my current director of the upper school, all of the department chairs, (laughs) and a couple other people. So it's quite intimidating for someone who doesn't like to speak about herself. (laughs) Yeah, you you, you sort of allude to this. How big a school is this that you you work in? It's a small school. Um, There's 297, I believe, students in the upper school. Uh, We have about 900 and, let me get the number wrong, but about 900 or so students um, in the entire school. We're pre-K, um, we're, we're pre-K three, meaning three-year-olds all the way up. We mm-hmm. call them little falcons, or our little um, forever falcons, <laughs> all the way up to 12th grade. So, yeah, so it's not a, those are not big graduating classes, but you have a lot of administration. So it sounds like it's a lot of support at different points um, for teachers and students in the school. Well, and there is a lot of support, in, but the department chairs are in charge of their departments all the way down. Mm-hmm. It's kind of nice transition. Um, and then I'm um, uh, in, in 
charge of or I moderate the academic council for the entire school. Um, and so it's it's a neat way to kind of help with it in terms of helping our uh, head of school realize her vision. So as the academic dean, are you, is your interface more with students? Is it more with teachers? Is it, where, where does the, I get the academic dean is a, is a title that I'm not, I don't have something like that at my school. What is the academic dean's primary interface with? Uh, all of the above. All of the above. <laughs> <laughs> Including parents. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, for example, um, we have department chair meetings where I'm a part of. We have um, other types of meetings. We've been introducing vice chairs in as well, um, just to have more teachers take leadership roles and feel empowered uh, within the school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so that they're, they're, we have, um, what else do we have? Um, I talk to the students about their scheduling. That's one of my the highlights of my whole school year is talking to students about what their school schedule will be for the next couple to few years mm-hmm. um, coming forward because then I really get to know them one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with parents, I run these parent coffees uh, a couple times a year, and I'm also part of this larger, uh, you know, voices in uh, education, headliners in education uh, discussion panel. So it's 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 really neat. Uh, there's a lot of moving parts, mm-hmm. um, but I do connect, and then with the teachers, of course, I connect with them uh, within our faculty meetings, and then also one on one as needed. And then with uh, we, I sit in on the evaluation process, I sit in on the teacher's classrooms as well, which is always wonderful. Um, I love it because then I can speak more soundly uh, in areas that I'm not yeah. familiar with. <laughs> yeah. Is it unusual for an academic dean to have a, um, to teach a class then in your school? Yes. <laughs> um, yes, it is. Our former academic dean did teach occasionally, mm-hmm. but it was uh, rare. Um it's hard. It's because you, as I said, there's a lot of moving parts. You're in charge of a lot of different things. I might be running from one meeting and then boom, right into my class. Um, the good thing is I toggle well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know how they say multitasking doesn't work, right? Based on the research, but I toggle well. Yeah. Um, I can toggle from one um, role to another fairly quickly, uh, as needed. Um, and then, yeah, it's it all works, and it's all amazing, and it suits my personality well. So yeah. I love it. Did you have to negotiate to keep that class as part of, like, uh, taking the job? The interviewing process, I actually put it right out there. Um, it, it's something that I would be willing to give up if we had someone. Uh, the APs, as you know, uh, it's not, not anyone can just go and, and teach it. Um, or teach it well. I, I think that if we found someone who was willing and ha- was passionate about it, who wanted to continually pro- professionally develop in it, um, I would be then more than happy to give it up. Well, maybe grudgingly happy <laughs> <laughs> to give it up because I love that connection with the students. Too. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it is interesting because you're now, I, I talk, spoke to someone during the summer who said, who basically is doing something similar that uh, she's a department head and basically said, I'll do it, but I'm not giving up, you know, this one class um, mm-hmm. and, and held on to it. So, uh, yeah, it's actually one of those things that makes me leery of um, of the administrative level. To me, it's 
you know, not to sound too derisive, I, I go to meetings and I like some of the committees I'm on. But if you ask me about my my day, you know, the best part of my day is the the time with the kids. Um, <laughs> and the worst part is the administrative, like dealing with administrative rules or that sort of thing. It's just, you know, not where my headspace is as a classroom teacher. And, you know, a new schedule comes out or there's a restriction on, you know, in our case, we've been doing some homework free weekends where we're blocking out schedules, trying to moderate student level. And it's just sort of a, a decision and it happens. And I'm a, I'm a teacher and it's a lot of thought and work went into it by a lot of good administrators and a lot of teachers who went into that. Um, I would rather not be in the meetings and have to work those out. <laughs> I'd rather sit down and work on my class <laughs> and then just deal with the administrative thing where you're like, okay, those are the restrictions. I can, I can handle that in my class and just make it work on that end. Um, but I, I, the longer I've been in this, the more and more I see, you know, people who started teaching when I did, who are now in administration, uh, making really positive impacts. It, it makes a, I'm a very torn, I guess, is the, the take home for me. I get a little torn up when I look at, you know, people like you or, or David or other people who have this, this foot into an administrative role who um, are making really positive impacts on their school. And I wonder, hmm, should I should reconsider what my role is? And, you know, how do I, how do I approach those things? <laughs> Well, and one of the things that I would say to that is that if you are in an administrative role, you have, you know, you have that kind of uh, charge almost mm -hmm. to help change what you feel is not right about either the way meetings are run or the uh, efficacy of certain um, programs. Um, so that's one thing that I would say that is pretty great. Um, and then also taking into voices, if you've... If you're coming from the ranks of teaching, you can also help bring out the voices of the, the teachers or your colleagues as well uh, and be sensitive to that um, or ha help others be sensitive to that. Yeah. So that's that's one thing that I, I'd say go for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is challenging on different levels, um, but if you are like me where you know you don't mind kind of working all the time <laughs> and just, you know, a, and having a, a way of um, molding or not molding, but shaping the, the situation that, that you are in um, with the help of others. I, I think it's a, it's a great thing. And then also you can bring up research on pedagogy. You can bring up research on neuroscience. You can bring up things that developmentally people may not be thinking about Mm -hmm. um, as they're making decisions. You can also bring up, uh, you know, stuff about how others work or, you know, no one likes to have things imposed on them. I mean, I think that some of the conversations on the national level have been uh, so bitter because of that, because teachers feel as if things are being imposed on them, uh, even though some of the stuff may be good, for example, NGSS. Mm -hmm. the, if you read those standards, they are so amazingly strong in terms of the direction that so many teachers could go and that would bring students to a different level in, in, in terms of what they understand mm -hmm. in science and the science practices, incorporating engineering, all of those things, models and rep representations, so they're not scared off by science. But because a lot of teachers feel as if it's being imposed on them or that they their salaries, their livelihoods, their you know, their jobs are at stake because of the testing involved. And again, 
testing's not bad. Testing's important as assessments, but the way that it's being used in a lot of contexts is what scares a lot of people. Um, and that, and it scares me too, because even though I'm not affected by it, the future generation is, uh, and our teachers are leaving the ranks, which is, you know, outstanding teachers who are getting burnt out, um, are leaving the ranks. And so that, you know, you, you can have some kind of small impact that can get larger over time. So I say go for it. We need <laughs> Yeah, and I, I've been working, um, I work on a, a committee, um, I, I started working on a committee in my school, which is on assessment, uh, workload, and instruction. I think that's, I think it's the AWI, it's changed names several times, and one of the readings, as you were saying, uh, one of the readings I was doing over break uh, was from this book called, uh, um, I'm trying to remember the, the title of it, it's, uh, it's From the Bell Curve to the Mountain, somebody on the, the committee had shared it. And in the introduction, they do this whole thing where they talk about the the cost um, and like when you make a change, how do you how do you weigh things out? Um, I'm gonna pull this up because I think it's a, it's got some good questions. And the questions they ask you are um, some of the the questions are you know what are the risks of trying a new practice and what is the risk of continuing your current practice is sort of one of those interesting dilemmas that you have to balance. No, I think that's a great set of questions to ask um, within your career, those are good guidelines, you know, in terms of, well, why are you doing this and what should you change? Um, and are there some things that you want to keep? So I, I, I'd be interested in your show notes. Please post that. Yeah, I'll definitely <laughs> post it. I, um, yeah, somebody had mentioned it and I found it on, uh, I'll definitely post a link to the book because it's a, uh, I only read through the introduction because that was sort of the our, our I don't want to say it was our signed reading, but it was sort of our signed reading to to do the intro. Um, but it, yeah, really fascinating sort of discussions. I I will uh, admit that I, I, you know, being the scientist that I am, I I was reading certain things and they were giving some examples and I was like cringing at a couple of the examples in. But the overall premise of what was being written, um, I thought were really good. And I find that um, you know when you talk about you know, when you discuss with colleagues what they're doing and, and how to change, if there is this entrenchment that you, if you end up feeling like you're have to defend what you're doing um, mm -hmm. in a meeting, like you go into a meeting and there's the discussion about, you know, uh, best practice or the practice that you're doing or how to improve your practice. And if the framing of it doesn't come in a way that allows you to sort of think about what you're doing and reflect upon what you like and what you want to keep and what you feel like you want to work on towards change, but rather comes across like these are the things that you need to change about your practice. There's an entrenchment, a, a defensive mechanism that sparks up. And, the and that's very human. That's very human. Yeah, and the um, conversation doesn't move. No, you're right. And I find a lot of that, you know, we were talking, you had mentioned all the online um, interests that I have. Uh, and, yes, I find that a lot. And one of the things that does kind of concern me is in terms of education, um, sometimes we hear or see things and then people automatically put up those walls as this is a new idea, I can't do it, there's nothing I can, uh, I have time constraints, I have this constraint, I have uh, monetary constraints, I have uh, funding constraints. Mm -hmm. um, and so I hope that people don't shut down or at least teachers don't shut down when they hear new ideas 
because they feel it's one more thing. And so I think if we can get it to a point where people are presenting things as, hey, this is what I do in meetings or in, in other arenas, in workshops, in uh, professional development, you might want to try it and, and see where it goes. Um, and then also providing the research behind why those things might or might not work um, I think that's a, a an important piece of it as well. Um, and, and you're right, like in terms of entrenchment, when your defense mechanisms are up, you know, it's that same thing. If some you feel as if someone's imposing their ideas on you, it's a very human thing to kind of just be like, hey, whoa, I'm doing fine. <laughs> yeah, so. and, and also the process. Um, I think that talking about the process of, how you got to a point where you decided to make a change is is really useful um, because I think it it suggests that you know the the entire thing should be a reflective process. You sat back, you looked at it, you said, "Oh, there's a lot of things that I'm doing really well, but I found ways of getting feedback about things where I could improve." And I think if you go into a meeting where it's a presentation or you go into you know, whatever it is, and you go into in here, like, this is the thing that you should be doing. You're not starting off from understanding the modeling that went through the process of this is a person who was doing very good things. I'm doing very good things. And they reflected on this aspect of it. Hey, I can reflect on this aspect of it um, and walk yourself to a point of, of understanding how you could get to someplace new. Well, um, and at our school, one of the most wonderful things about it is that, um, our administration, even before me, um, our former uh, director, had cool things in the classroom, where, which would be a, a portion of the faculty meeting that one of the teachers would lead. Mm-hmm. And so the teachers were able to share resources uh, that they were using uh, in the classroom, whether it's digital or online or software or just techniques or just different models that they've used and then it's just always wonderful because it's because of the time constraints it's hard to get teachers in each other's classrooms Um, and uh, my head of school has done some of that where we've picked names out of the hat and then gone to teachers from different levels as well and sat in on their classes and so you can see um, and then you get coverage internally Mm -hmm. uh, at one period or whatever else and those things have really helped I think kind of move our meetings away from just the agenda items. Mm-hmm. And then another thing that uh, my director has done, which I think is great, is you know how you see those posts about, you know, I sat in another meeting that could have been an email. <laughs> well, he has sent out on every Monday, he sends out uh, an upper school newsletter. And then on there we'll have some, educational resources, so links to interesting articles that he or I or someone else has mentioned uh, will be in there, and then the agenda items that would have been on previous faculty meetings or, you know, before that. Um, And so that's been nice because then people are expected to read the newsletter and Mm -hmm. they're linked in there to important pieces or things for the learning management system that they have, deadlines or uh, other types of meetings that are are on there, and our head of school is also really good about having these optional meetings. Come if you want to be a part of the conversation. So, for example, we have research and development meetings, and it's open to anyone who wants to come. 
it's optional, so it's not something that you have to do. Um, and so that also has contributed to a little bit more vibrancy in terms of the conversations that are had and empowered our teachers a little bit more as professionals. So yeah, it also speaks a lot to you know the culture that you've you have developed in the school. I think that you know I teach in a very different school where two thousand students or nearly two thousand students, just nine through twelve, um, and so we're just enormous. And um, some of the, I think some of the divisions that end up happening with our school literally are like a physical division. We are, you know, I, I teach with 19 science teachers, um, <laughs> you know, uh, and it's, I have colleagues in other departments and you just, it's such an enormous building and a physical space that sometimes breaking down those barriers and getting to talk to other people about what they're doing and seeing each other, um, it's not a, des- it's not a lack of desire. Um, right. It's a it's a struck it, it's a structural barrier to get through. Um, so these are some these are some interesting ideas. Um, we've we've floated with a few different ideas. I think that we need to be a little creative about how we go about doing it. Literally because of structure, um, you know, it, it's hard. It's, it, you have to almost make a an extraordinary effort in a building that has so many people in it to to break those things down. Um, but I, I think it speaks really nicely to the culture of your school that you're able to provide optional meetings where you can get people to come and, and collaborate and, and, and have those cross-disciplinary ideas. Well, and I wonder in terms of um, the physical mm-hmm. divisions, we are able to do that in the AP Biology community so well online. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that would be something, a model that we, you could use in a school that is much larger. Yeah. Uh, if people are interested, they're welcome to join. They don't have to. Uh, but in Twitter conversations or in, you know, a school Facebook, I mean, some schools actually have, um, a, a, you know, where, you know, restrictions. Yeah. <laughs> Find the word, but restrictions against using Facebook. But if it, if your school doesn't, maybe something like that or, um, you know, something else, uh, another way of kind of breaking down those physical barriers, but still having those interesting conversations and sharing ideas or interdisciplinary mm-hmm. uh, things, you know, because a lot of times people don't know what's going on in the social studies department, what's yeah. going on in the uh, math department or, you know, and so maybe that might be a way of, Again, inviting those who are have the will but don't have the way of getting there. Yeah. Um, I think uh, yeah, I think that some of those things are happening, but they're doing them informally. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I definitely feel like some of those things that you're saying. Um, I am almost constant. There's one uh, social studies teacher in particular that I am nearly constantly. Uh, I talk to him more on Twitter than I talk to him face to face in the building. Um, and there's, there's a few people in the building that are like that where I, if I, if it wasn't from the online platforms, I would never have conversations with them. Um, because, <laughs> because as you say, the size of the building, um, but maybe, maybe formalizing some of those things or doing a Twitter chat. I never thought about doing a Twitter chat inside the building. Um, that might be a, that might be a fascinating well, thing to try. They don't even have to leave the building if it's snowing out. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Yeah, some great ideas. So this actually leads me into the other question I was going to ask you about, um, which was, uh, you know, looking at the professional development offerings that you've been involved over the past couple of years, um, you know, presenting workshops on scientific literature and writing. And um, and it, it strikes me that like literacy seems to be a theme that runs through 
you know, at least a handful of the workshops you've been involved in. I guess the question is, is this from some of the interdisciplinary work or school-wide work, or is this a personal interest? Um, is it fair to say that literacy is a theme that you've been working on, and, and where's the drive for that? It's a little bit of each of the things you've mentioned, yeah. um, and that's just having the opportunity. So, uh, for example, Howard Hughes Medical Institute, HHMI, mm-hmm. they asked uh, about some of these things that uh, um, that you just mentioned that would be interesting for me. And I bet because, yes, that's definitely uh, a goal of mine with my own students. But also in terms of general biology, I feel as if, you know, with the, the political climate, with the things that in terms of climate change, in terms of evolution, the conversations that are cut short because people shut down science mm-hmm. or any discussion of scientific findings. Um, part of that is because they're either not exposed to it in a way that is palatable or that they can understand. And I think we need to kind of bridge that gap where they look at a research study and they don't glaze over because, oh, I don't understand that. It's easy to dismiss things that you don't understand. Um, so I think that literacy is really important. I still make my students, I shouldn't say make, I still (laughs) assign um, readings from the textbook. I still assign readings from journal articles or, um, you know, second semester more so than first semester. First semester, we're just shoring out their foundation uh, so that they can understand some of the science they'll be reading uh, in second semester. Uh, but I think that if we can make it more palatable, um, and I, that's why I love writers such mm-hmm. as uh, Catherine Schultz, uh, Carl Zimmer, um, Ed Young, because they make it you know, just understandable for the public, mm-hmm. where it's not this scary thing, or not even scary, but just like, oh, well, that doesn't make sense, so it must not be true, you know, or... If you don't understand it, you can just ignore it. Uh, so I think that literacy is definitely something that we need to continue to help the general public. Um, and starting with the generation that we have and build on that. So in the future, they can be informed citizens making decisions based on their understanding or things that they seek out, that they'll seek out the information rather than just hearing about something. We recently, of course, had the whole fake news versus mm-hmm. real news uh, discussions. Yeah. You know, they'll seek it out. So, or that they'll, they'll look for the evidence and, and believe multiple pieces of evidence rather than, okay, well, this one is wrong, so then everything else must be wrong. <laughs> Less than 1% of climate change data. Yeah. This is the over 99%. <laughs> well, it, it, you speak to sort of several different levels of literacy. And the, you know, I think of, you know, a book like, you know, Ed Young's uh, book where that's definitely written for, you know, n- not the research scientist and versus breaking down journal articles, which is a, you know, much more in-depth, um, you know, form of, of literacy that you would apply for you know, an AP bio kid or a kid who's going to go off to, to college and need to break down journal articles. Um, I think of it as a continuum. I guess my question is, um, I love doing the readings with my students. I, in fact, was just, uh, I do a historical journal club assignment with my AP bio students right after break. 
where they um, I give them be- the original articles from Beetle and Tatum and Hershey and Chase, and uh, we do a little jigsaw activity with that, and I give them the original articles. Uh, I think that's great. I guess my question is, when we think about it as a continuum of skills, and we start with sort of those younger kids, um, do you see any of the, the cross-connections that, that you see with other teachers or other departments where uh, there's a common language to literacy that you're applying? Um, I think so. At our school, uh, it's a pretty big deal in mm-hmm. terms of writing, in terms of across, across disciplines. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in terms of most of the kids that we have as ninth grade biology students, most of those students are not going to be scientists. So we need to expose them at least enough where they, even if they are not at the high level, when they hear about something that they can discern whether or not, okay, where's the source? What's the source? Um, it's one study. Does one study tell us anything? Uh, has it been replicated? You know, things like that. Um, so, yes, I am speaking on multiple levels, but I think it's important at multiple levels. Mm-hmm. And I think at our school, there's a, we do a, a fairly decent job because writing and, and reading are still very important. Um, but in terms of nationwide, uh, I think we need to do a little bit of a better job. Um, and I don't know how that works. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that the NGSS standards, are, the, those are a great starting point uh, in terms of the practices at the younger levels. I'm not concerned about our AP and IB students as much as I am with those who are not going to be, which is a majority of, you know, students who are entering or have to take bio, physics, chemistry, in whatever order. Um, They're not going to be scientists, but they need to be at least... I don't know. Not, not knowledgeable is not the word, but um, receptive, yeah. I would say. Receptive to <laughs> learning about science or at least reading about science before they make decisions that affect all of us. Um, yeah. I guess the, the filter of whether or not you accept you know, a, a claim that somebody makes shouldn't be solely based off of whether it matches your existing worldview. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> the, the skepticism from a claim should be equal whether or not it matches your worldview or not, that you should want there to be some evidence that backs up whatever the piece is. Um, Yes. And that may be fighting a little against human nature, um, as you mentioned earlier. You know, you hear something, it matches up what you already think, and you can kind of just nod your head and smile and and don't have to dive any any deeper. Um, But those critical thinking skills of here is something that is supposed to be factual, asking for the evidence that supports it before you just, you know, accept it. Um, or seeking out the evidence, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think that, that being able to seek it out. And uh, science used to be a role uh, in terms of, you know, now, nowadays we can use first person when we're writing mm-hmm. uh, an article, or we, I say we in general, yeah. <laughs> scientists. <laughs> um, but it used to be that you wouldn't use, um, you know, the first person, because mm-hmm. you're not part of the experiment. You're not, you know, uh, in the experiment. Hopefully you are the experimenter on, you know, looking and observing this natural phenomena and trying to make sense of it with data. There is no good or bad, as uh, you mentioned with Paul. 
It's true. <laughs> right? There's, a, there's not a value judgment on it. What, where the value comes from is, you know, the statistical analysis of the scientific evidence that supports it from multiple or multiple perspectives of science, not just just a single, you know, well, this is one study, so we'll accept it wholeheartedly. And then we hear about, um, I, I, I don't want to be too political about yeah, it. Yeah, no, I understand. <laughs> um, but I do think that we have um, a charge as teachers who have these students who are going to be in charge of the future for all of us. Uh, we do have, you know, that critical thinking aspect of it where uh, if we can instill in them to think critically without being, um, I, I don't know, I, it, it's hard to, you know, it's that, that whole, okay, you are not a part of the experiment, but yeah. this is the experimental data, so you can have feelings about it. Yeah. However, the data is the data. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had a so the, my social studies teacher friend actually told me that uh, that in his in his subject uh, there are value judgments with the data, um, <laughs> and I told him in science that's not the case. Uh, but I I know what you mean. Like there's this there's this natural piece to being a scientist, which is a skeptical appraisal of everything. But skepticism is not naysaying, and I think that's sort of this dilemma that I think a lot of scientists are are coming up against where. There's this natural process of science where in order to change the model, you need to be presented this this new data that has to sort of be overwhelming. Like we have an existing model that went through the scrutiny. New data in order to shift the paradigm needs to be substantial. It really needs to make you reevaluate the entire model and and change the model. Um, and sort of so skepticism is being used as this this wedge. Um which is which is tough because it, it is a tool that's part of our natural thinking, but it's it's in some ways being misused. Skepticism in in just the naysaying, skepticism without data, is not really the same as skepticism in science. Right. So. Yeah. So I think we can move that needle just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We need claims, and then we need evidence, and we need reasoning. Um, I think. reasoning, <laughs> and also I think um, having respect. For others' worldviews mm -hmm. is really important, um, and I mean, I'm at an Episcopalian school, or we're Episcopalian affiliated. We accept all faiths. We mm -hmm. have Muslims, we have uh, Jewish students, we have Hindu students. Um, I was raised Buddhist, you know. So we have a whole bunch of different faiths um, at this school, but it doesn't mean that. You know, I, it, it doesn't mean just because you accept the science or you accept the data that it goes, it should go against your belief system. Yeah. Your belief system is your belief system. And, and part of that whole concept of faith, I think that it, that that's, you know, it, it, it's separate. Yeah. <laughs> it's separate. It, it doesn't need to um, battle each other. You know? <laughs> yeah. you know, one day in the Bible, could that when we say one day uh, or this day and age, do we mean just today? No, we mean this day and age, meaning this this period of time. Yeah. So would that be also, um, you know, and so it, it's it's a, it's it's a lot of uh, I think respect. I think respecting each other's worldviews, but at the same time presenting 
the data is the data and, and I respect what you feel. I respect where you are coming from. This is the science of it and it's not meant to counteract your point of view or your worldview. Um, if we could get to that point, I think it would be quite powerful. Yeah. That's a, it's, it's something, it, it sparks a lot of things that I, I realize as I teach in my little Northeast bubble, um, you know, cause I do a, uh, I do an assignment where we'd look at sort of the history of the challenge of teaching evolution. Um, and by and large, you know, in a class of 24 students, it really is not a dilemma for 22 of them. <laughs> you know, there's, right. a, there's a couple of kids who it definitely is and, and they are, you know, thinking about their faith and they're thinking about their family. But by and large, it is this is like the least controversial assignment because of, who, you know, where I am. Um, and the nature of the community that I teach in. Uh, but I realize having talked to others and, you know, having been in other parts of the country, I end up showing the uh, What About God video from uh, the Evolution Series, the PBS Evolution Series. And I show that to the kids so that they can develop a little empathy for students right. who are grappling uh, with this. And I say, I don't show this in any way to for you to mock or to think it's, you know, strange to to have this conflict of belief with science i said i'm showing this to you to help you understand to develop empathy that mm -hmm. for some people this is a legitimately challenging thing where you know this thing that you're studying the science that you're studying comes in conflict with everything that you've been raised to believe up to this point so um yeah i think that that perspective um probably wasn't as I probably wasn't as thoughtful about it in my earlier years of teaching. Um, again, growing up in the, the bubble that I grew up in. Uh, but hopefully we can all, you know, take a step back and, and say, you know, there's a difference between, you know, by definition, belief is, you know, uh, is, is faith uh, in the absence of evidence. Like you are, you don't need evidence. Um, your faith is your faith. Um, to say it's okay to separate those two, that there can be a divide and... What we look at from scientific evidence does not have to threaten or challenge or attack um, what you hold dear in your heart. So, all right. Well, we have uh, we've marched through. We've tackled many challenging problems here today. Um, <laughs> so let me ask you uh, to shift gears and, and ask you in the upcoming years, what are you looking forward to uh, in your class in the next couple of years? Okay. So in terms of what I'm looking forward to, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to bringing in a lot more opportunities for innovation with my kids. Um, uh, you know, I've been reading a lot about the generation that's coming up, the Generation Z. Mm -hmm. um, a, a couple of years ago, Wired Magazine had an article about, you know, American schools are training students for a world that doesn't exist, or I can't remember the exact title of it. Um, and about the concept of learning by doing, which in science, that's it plays so nicely into that. Uh, but we've got kids who are just, they're living in this digital age. And consuming is not all bad if they're consuming what's going to feed them and nurture their intellectual passions and help them uh, determine, you know, what they want to do or the next steps. Um, and so, and then create something with it, you know, mm -hmm. so I, I think that that's what I'm excited about is that we have a whole generation coming up that, yes, they were raised on digital media, that they have social media as 
a friend and a major foe in many cases in terms of distractions, in terms of um, things that are said that you can't take back kind of thing. Um, but there's also things that we can help kind of foster in them. Um, and then also just encourage those kids who are just going to change the world in very positive ways because mm -hmm. they have access to so much. So that's what I'm excited about that. That's great. I, I used, to, used to joke. It, I haven't been used this joke as, as often, but I, a few years ago, often felt very frustrated in my building about our technology use. And I said, we're doing an awesome job getting our kids ready for 1992. Um, <laughs> that would be my, my standing joke every time I would run into a technological, you know, or I'd want to use some technology in some way. And I'd run up against, you know, either an infrastructure or, you know, an access piece uh, with schools. But I think you're right that the I think the world is sort of catching up. I felt like we we spent as educators um, an unnecessary decade waging battle about, you know, whether kids should be able to access certain things online or uh, using their cell phones or that sort of thing. And I feel like there's been a shift the last few years where it's no, they live in a digital world. We should teach them in a digital world as well. And um, as you're right, science is, is very powerful and being able to connect with people all over the world is a is a huge is a huge piece with that. Um, and I would also to the empathy piece that hmm. we talked about earlier. Yeah. Um, there can be brilliant ideas out there, but unless there's an empathy piece to it, where they're considering those who would be impacted, um, I think that that could be also dangerous. You yeah. know, in terms, and we've seen that as well with the digital world. So I think that it's going to be an ongoing conversation that needs to be had. Um, but the more that we can have it with our students and, you know, and I, I, it goes back to also ethics and talking about ethical concerns. I think in science too, that we have some great opportunities to talk about bioethical concerns. Um, it, actually I'll hold off because you're going to talk about your pick of the week. <laughs> Oh, you, you you just showed up Paul Strode. Paul, you, you didn't you didn't pull up. I was like, oh, she's pulling a Paul Strode. She's going to jump right into the pick right now. Um, no, no. Oh, I didn't. I didn't see that part. <laughs> no, when Paul, I talked to Paul, he like when I asked him what he was looking forward to, he just went right into his pick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then he was like, oh, darn. <laughs> so uh so I will pull up oh, all right we'll, we'll we'll hold off on that so all right so when you're not in the classroom and you mentioned sort of earlier I sort of chuckled when you you mentioned you know work too much because um I, I work in a I work in a mentoring program uh with people online I had talked to Robin about that um because Robin had worked in that same mentoring program and one of our early conversations is one of the one of my mentees asked about work-life balance and I was like yeah I don't know that I'm the right person because <laughs> people ask me all the time when do you sleep um because like well what'll happen is I'll come back to work and I'll be like yeah last night I had this idea so I built this game and here's this other thing and I was thinking I'll do this and like one of my colleagues will look at me like when <laughs> when did you make this and I was like I just did last night and, uh because I don't I don't have a very good uh I don't have I don't have those kind of boundaries I'm supposed to have I think I'm getting better at it at least I acknowledge that my boundaries aren't there but assuming you're not working on your classroom or working in your academic dean role what do you do when what do you like to do when you're not uh in those roles yeah. well you know family is a huge deal for me so of course, like everyone else, um, I like to spend time with my son. Um, and, oh, actually, speaking of which, he wanted me to give him a shout-out. So, Grayson, this is your <laughs> shout-out from your mom. <laughs> um, 
and then uh, uh, I love my husband cooks really well, so I love to enjoy his cooking. Um, and then you know, I, my days outside are they start probably around five fifteen, if not earlier. And five thirty, I do yoga with PBS Power Yoga, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm trying to do it more regularly. I lost a little bit of time there uh, between summer and now, where I was doing it just in spot fits and starts but i'm gonna try to do that more regularly uh i do run but i usually just run once a week i'm not like you and paul (laughs) or ryan (laughs) i think you guys run all the time (laughs) Uh, but uh but i do try to get out at least once a week doing that um and i spend time at the library with my son that was one of my joys growing up um especially as an english language learner uh we used to call it esl Mm -hmm. uh but I spent a ton of time just at my mom and dad would just drop me off at the library um, and then pick me up. You know, there were just hours that I would spend there. But I, I spend it with my son. And I'm usually, if you see me on Twitter at 10 o'clock <laughs> or 11 o'clock on um, a Saturday morning, that's because we're at the library and I am doing my thing while we're in the children's section <laughs> or the preteen section now that he's getting older. Yeah. So, yeah. Huh? Yeah, I just enjoy life. I mean, the weather here is gorgeous. Went to the beach yesterday um, with family. Um, a lot of it's family, yeah. you know. So. Yeah, I'm just rubbing it in, rubbing it in the U.S. I was saying that yesterday it was over 45 here. And it was like shorts and t-shirts weather in Massachusetts at 45. But <laughs> lure everyone down for our June uh, professional development week. <laughs> yeah, it'll be like it'll be like 95, and it'll be like a thousand percent humidity. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. It'll still be fun. <laughs> You'll learn a lot. We'll I, learn I, a I'm lot. sure. I, I I have it circled. It's it's on my it's on my uh, my potential to do list uh, uh, for for summer for summer workshops. I got a. <laughs> I think I'm well tied into those. All right. So uh, do you, before we get to picks of the week, you have any questions for me? Uh, yes, I did have a couple of questions. So let me see here. Um, so what motivates you to stay in education? Uh, you know, we've been reading a lot about teachers burning out and leaving. What motivates you to stay in education? Um, that's a, that's a really interesting question. Cause I used to feel, I'd say like maybe eight or nine years ago, I, I did go through a period where I, I was kind of down, um, you know, for, sort of felt like I'd gone through a wave of teaching and, um, you know, in a lot of ways, I almost feel like I lost my way uh, in terms of what I was teaching. I, I wasn't as curious about what I was doing. Um, I, I felt like I just sort of was a little bit of a drift. But for me right now, um, the thing that has always inv- interested me about teaching um, are two things. One, the kids. Um, that was what saved me in those times. Uh, I find teenagers enormously fascinating and hysterical. Um, <laughs> those like the, the kids just, I mean, they keep me going, uh, day in, day out. And I say that like, that's the best part of the day is, is the mm-hmm. time with them. Um, but the same thing that drives me in terms of science is the same thing that drives me in terms of teaching. Um, it's this never ending puzzle. Um, in science, you get done a question. Um, you know, you, you run a lab, you get an investigation, you, you, if you're fortunate enough to get an answer, the, it naturally raises five or six new questions. And I feel like teaching is kind of the same way. 
Mm-hmm. Um, in the last few years, that's been what I've been doing. So I've been approaching teaching very much like a science in the sense where I ask a question and the question could be, you know, how do I, um, how do I de-emphasize uh, the teacher-centered teacher standing at the front of the room lecturing? You know, how do I get away from that model, which is very much the, the model that I, I started teaching in and I taught for the majority of my career. How do I change the practice that I'm doing without compromising the student's learning, in fact, improve the student's learning by decentralizing my classroom. And then pursuing a series of activities or um, you know, practices to try to get to that point. Uh, how do I make it so that um, investigations drive the learning in my science classroom? And then pursuing that down a natural pathway. And I, when I get down through one of those pieces, um, so for example, I would say with AP, we've done a really, really nice job, uh, my colleague Brian and I, of really making the labs drive our class. And you know that's very much thanks to the new AP standards, but it's also been our work. Um, mm-hmm. And now that we're there, the question is, you know, how do I make the practices more transparent to the students? Um, I was listening to when I was listening to Horizontal Transfer and uh, and Paul Anderson this past week, he was saying, you know, he was talking to us, another teacher um, and they were asking about the the practices and the students had no idea about the practices. And I when I heard that, I was like, yeah, my kids don't know the practices either. Um, they do them, but they don't know them like they could not give voice to the practices. So how do I make it so that the students understand the metacognition? How do I help them understand the practices that they're working. So again, that's like, that's the new question. So I feel like the way that we go through this process is that there's always another question that will be asked after we, you know, answer a question. And just like in science, there's a lot of things that you're going to try that won't work. And you're going to spend a lot of time working out the materials and methods and maybe new questions will rise, or maybe you're just going to need to seek out better ways of, of answering those questions. So that's sort of the, that's, that's the space that I'm in right now. And that's just one of the reasons why I love talking to, you know, great teachers uh, from around the country. Yeah, I think those are great questions for you to ask, too. And um, I think also we put a lot of pressure on ourselves in terms of, for example, the science practices. We know our students are doing them because we are providing those experiences for them. I don't know if it's explicitly, uh, and we should show them explicitly, these are the practices that you are learning at some point. But I don't think that it's something that they need to rattle off at the end as these are the practices that I learned. Mm-hmm. Um, I think knowing about it is the important part and also just learning and doing them is the most important part. So I think you're, I mean, it sounds like you're doing great. <laughs> I love the experiences you've mentioned. Um, I did also want to mention one resource that uh, I stumbled on on Twitter uh, from at Cerilli No, um, Christina Milos, she posts very interesting stuff about educational uh, research, and it's Dr. Peter Borks from UCLA's uh, Department of Psychology. He had a a lecture talk, which, yes, that's not (laughs) student-centered learning, but for us educators, uh, it's a really good resource that goes through the research of learning uh, in particular um, with different aspects that we've already talked about. For example, uh, David Knufke's uh, interleaving, he mentioned that in the horizontal um, transfer episode as well. But these are really important things to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to send that to you if that's okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll put it right in the show notes. And one of the things too is that 
with the metacognition piece, mm-hmm. uh, we are really terrible as humans at <laughs> recognizing our own learning um, because the talk is actually about uh, how you learn versus how you think you learn kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so it's interesting. So some of the feedback we get from students as teenagers, we have to kind of take with a grain of salt uh, because they may think they learn better from lectures, for example. Mm-hmm. They're just being spoon-fed information. Uh, and yet, of course, we now know with uh, Eric Mazur's research on active learning and uh, uh, some of the pieces here from Dr. Peter Burke as well, I think will be interesting uh, mm-hmm. for you to listen to or for our, your listeners to to kind of see. Yeah. I've actually had that, I've had that argument um, this year a little bit. I don't know, maybe argument's the wrong term, but I've had that discussion that um, I have really been changing and breaking a lot of our, our lectures. And we have a, we have a collaborative process set up in our, in our school with our different levels. So for example, in honors biology, we have three honors biology teachers. We have um, shared syllabus, shared PowerPoint notes. Share, we have shared curricula. And we work collaboratively on it. And the idea is that you get the same same learning objectives, same content, so forth, um, no matter what teacher you have. Um, mm-hmm. And it's collaboratively, collaboratively built. But we've been drifting on how we go about presenting that information. And one of the questions I got when I was, you know, um, I was using chalk markers specifically. And what I would do is I would take the PowerPoint slide deck that I was supposed to go over during a day during a classic lecture. We have questions embedded in some of those. But what I did is I basically took them and I turned them into six stations and I gave the kids chalk markers and our big black tables and I had them write out on those big black tables the answers. And then I had them rotate through and be able to read and give feedback to one another to the other groups and then we did a share out at the end. And when I did the share out, I put the PowerPoint slides up and clicked through them kind of quickly mm-hmm. for a, this is where, these, these are the PowerPoint slides. So if you want to go back and review these on your own, this is where they, they are. Um, and I did that. And I had one of my, my colleagues was asking me about it. And he was basically saying, but some of the students like, they say they want lecture. And I was like, yeah, that's because they want to be passive. They want to be wallpaper. <laughs> so right. um, just because they want to be wallpaper doesn't mean you right. let them be wallpaper. Um, well, uh, and sometimes we have to remind them that you may dislike our teaching now, but you're going to love it later when you retain information, when you're able to apply the information, um, and when you're able to seek out answers for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I love that picture that you posted of that, by the way. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I'm, I'm all about making those kids nice and uncomfortable in my classroom. Um, they, if they're not a little, there's not a little disequilibrium, how are they going to learn? Yeah, exactly. So, all mm-hmm. right. Well, um, let's move on to the picks of the week. Chi, what's your pick of the week? So let's see. What was my pick of the week? <laughs> uh, I have a couple. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. Um, so I have, uh, so one of the things that I'm really interested in as an educator, uh, as an administrator as well, is the link between emotions and cognition. Um, and on uh, plus the lab- Public Library of Science, they had open highlights, some glimpses into the emotional brain. Um, so I thought that that was really fascinating to kind of go through because this is a way of quantifying uh, emotions, or it, at least how our, our brains and our and we perceive emotions, which is very very difficult uh, to kind of 
kind of measure. Uh, so I thought that was pretty fascinating. And the other piece that um, kind of grabbed my attention is, of course, the new movie Hidden Figures uh, that's going to be released January 6th about the African-American female scientists, mathematicians behind John Glenn's space flight. And, um, of course, John Glenn was among the notables we lost this year. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, Vera Rubin recently uh, with who we just lost, I think, this week. Yeah, this week. Dark Matter, yeah. So those are my two things. Yeah. What are your two picks? Yeah, so my pick is a little bit um, different. I was, uh, you know, sort of you were saying scrolling through on uh, on Twitter, um, and uh, one of the things that sort of popped out, and it's been something that's been going on actually for the entire fall, um, is that Rebecca Skloot's um, uh, book, uh, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, is being turned into an HBO movie. Um, and so uh, they, Entertainment Weekly posted the first photos of Oprah um, in the Henrietta Lacks movie uh, and they, that went up this week on... Um, on their website. And for me, it's just, you know, this time, this is going to be our, our New Year's Day episode. Um, so I was thinking, you know, like, what am I looking forward to in 2017? And I was like, yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing the HBO movie on Henrietta Lacks. And I don't know if it'll be a resource that I ever use in my classroom. Um, I used to use, uh, when I used to teach a bioethics class, and I used to use all sorts of HBO movies um, in that, you know, and the band played on. Oh, yeah. Uh, mo- probably most notably, but uh, several others as well. Um, they did uh, they did a movie um, called Miss Evers Boys about the Tuskegee Airmen um, and the Tuskegee Syphilis Study. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's I have a variety of them. And I uh, they did, just did uh, a couple of years ago um, about Jack Kevorkian. Um, they did a movie, yeah. which I know my colleague who took that course over from me uses that um, as, as part of the the Doctor Assisted Suicide. But as you were mentioning earlier, there's so many not only interesting scientific components, but ethical components that come up uh, with the with the HeLa cells. And in that movie, I, I'm I'm interested and intrigued to see how they take that nuanced, layered book and turn it into a movie. I'm curious what aspects they highlight. And um, and what possible resources um, that might be for our students, you know, either in classroom or outside of the classroom, just to become aware of sort of the ethical issues of, of using HeLa cells. Well, and I think that these kind of uh, major movies or even HBO or other types of movies, uh, I think that they have an appeal to, again, that majority of students in the freshman biology or in other science classes that may not become scientists mm-hmm. yeah but it helps them kind of these situations and at the end the band played on um i actually had my students watch that while i was away <laughs> at uh, <laughs> some of my workshops <laughs> um and it led to uh, great conversations and then of course uh, with hiv aids um but also about the ethical concerns, uh, and, and then also just in terms of cultural concerns. And so we uh, were able to have some great discussions about that. Um, and I, yeah, I, I love that you're doing that. And, um, I can't wait for that movie as well. Uh, I wish they would do something about, you know, in terms of making it more palatable for this generation of kids, uh, in terms of vaccinations. I wish to, I mean, it, HHMI has a resource that's great, uh, but I don't think that for most of the population that's already not tuned into science, mm-hmm. we almost need something 
a little bit, you know, more palatable to the masses. Um, I love HHMI resources, uh, but I do think that for those who are not willing to listen to the hardcore science, the hardcore science, we need to kind of, I don't know, put sugar on it, <laughs> <laughs> sweeten it up a little bit, or <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I think that uh, that would also be another thing that would be important, to, you know, as we see these diseases coming back, yeah, um, which is terrifying. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll have to put on the right the right people onto it, you know. I don't know, Lin Manuel Miranda. He's uh, he's done with Hamilton, so oh my gosh. maybe maybe we can have a takedown of uh, <laughs> of of the Lancet article um, <laughs> as his next project. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe, and that's another example of one study having yeah. the impact that it did with no replication, with a multitude of data that did not support it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a yeah. Great example. All right. Well, Chi, thank you for joining me. This has been uh, an outstanding talk. Uh, as I told, I sort of alluded to, there was no way I was going to keep it under an hour um, when we have a great, uh, great conversation going. Uh, but uh, it, it's been an awesome talk. Let me give my, uh, let me give my final credits here. Uh, music for this and every episode is provided by uh, Jenk Jenkins and X Magicians. You can subscribe to this on. Uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other place where you can download or subscribe to podcasts. Uh, you can leave show notes or you can read show notes on uh, lifeoftheschool.org. Um, and you can also send feedback on the website or via Twitter uh, at Mr. Matthew Tweets. Uh, you can also give feedback to Chi. Chi, what is your handle? Your uh, Chi. Chi underscore molecule. Chi molecule. Uh, <laughs> so you can give, uh, give feedback to Chi directly on, on Twitter if you'd like as well. Um, and again, uh, at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School um, on Twitter for, for me. So Chi, thank you again for joining me. Thank you. As I said, I'm really humbled by this opportunity, Aaron, uh, uh, especially with the heavy hitters you've had on. <laughs> well, you, you, did, you did not disappoint at all. And so uh, this will be our, our New Year's Day. So finally, we're going to be in 2017. I think we're all thankful of that. And, uh, and I will talk to everybody soon. Happy New Year.